0: A second, and uh, it's not so much bragging on us as it is just what God is doing through us. Uh, you guys were amazing last week in our back to school Sunday and the supplies that you guys brought uh, to be distributed out. You helped three schools this week in our community. Uh, we just bombarded Gateway Elementary with glue sticks and there's more paper in there like it was like a two load kind of just paper everywhere. There were tissues that will wipe the the grossness of a kid off and and, and and a teacher is going to benefit from that. What you, uh, There were, there were uh, just thousands of, of, of supplies that were given. There were backpacks that went to three different schools. We were able to give some backpacks to uh, Gateway Elementary. We were able to give some backpacks here to the middle school and to Hunter Lane, Hunter's Lane High School. And so just thank you guys for having a spirit of generosity. We say this a lot, that we love to be wildly generous. And sometimes it happens in those red boxes, and sometimes it happens with you bringing some glue sticks. Sometimes it happens in showing up at Music on Main, and so just thank you for that. Let me tell you about one other opportunity that we unveiled last week that is a whole new program that we're trying uh, to, to partner with our schools here. We're doing what's called an adopt a classroom, and it's really adopt a teacher is what we're doing, and so I just want to kind of encourage those of you who haven't made that leap to do this yet, or maybe weren't here last week, and, and uh, what we're doing is we've taken every teacher from Gateway and every teacher from Goodlitzville Middle and then any teachers that we have that w- that are partners here and we're just going to adopt them for the entire school year. Now we had some confusion last week. Adopt a classroom does not mean that you're going to have to go on field trips and throw pizza parties. What it means is this, is that you're going to get to know a teacher on some level throughout the course of the year and just be an encouragement to them. It can be as easy as just writing a card that says, hey, hang in there, you're almost to Christmas, or hang in there, it's almost fall break, or hey, have a cup of coffee and slide a $5 gift card in that and say, hey, this, for that morning that you're struggling to get going, have a cup of coffee on me, or here's a pack of dry erase markers that I know that you've got to be out of at this point in the year, or it's... Uh, Cold season, here's some more tissues, or here's some hand sanitizer, but just... Encouraging them, letting them know that someone is thinking of them every couple weeks, once a month. Letting them know that, listen, you are being prayed for. You are being thought about. I'm here for you. And so we want you to do that. That's really as simple as it is. Last week, here's the good news. We had about 60-something classrooms that we were going to try to do this. Over half is gone. They're already distributed out. And so we've got about 25 left. And I know that those will get gobbled up today and begin to make those relationships. I've even told people this. If you can't, you know, some of us have Schedules through the week that doesn't allow us a lot of free time during the day. Bring that stuff with you on Sunday, especially if you adopt someone from here. We have access to their boxes and we can put stuff in there for you so that you can, you know, you can get that stuff to them. Um, if your budget's tight and you go, man, I would love to, but let me know what you need. We'll buy the stuff and then let you give it to them. We'll let you be the conduit. That will be relational in that. But again, pray over that. Think about that. Go see. There's a big booth out there that's Adopt a Student or Adopt a, a Classroom. And uh, Leanne will get you a classroom. And you can get started on that this week. And it'll be a blessing uh, to not just our schools, to those teachers. But you'll be blessed in it as well. And so just want to encourage you to that. I'm going to pray and then we're going to continue uh, with Eats with Sinners this morning. Father, today is a tough one. And you know that because you told the story. And so, Father, I pray that we prepare our hearts and minds to be challenged this morning, that, God, you would speak truths uh, through me, the truths that you have called us to, the truths that make a difference, truths that are challenging, but truths that are truths no, nonetheless. So, Father, we just pray that you would bless us as we receive this, that you would transform us as we try to live this, and that, God, you would use us in the process to bring someone closer to you, to make them feel value and love the way you meant for them to feel. And so, Father, we just pray all things this morning would circle around you, your message of mercy and love. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. I remember the first time I ever felt significant, we'll call it biblical proportions, pain and discomfort. And there's probably a moment that you can look back and remember. For me, it was about fourth or fifth grade. In fact, it was so painful that I've kind of even, I can't even re- exactly recall those, one of those two years. But uh, it was in Summertown, Tennessee. Uh, we were living there for just a little while. My dad was a minister, and so we had kind of landed there for a little bit. It's a little small, sleepy town just south of here. And so I remember being out on the playground at recess. And I can remember the layout of the playground. There was this old, which in no way, form, or fashion would be deemed safe anymore playground. Uh, this was back when you used to have merry-go-rounds. You remember those? Yeah, those were the deal. Like, man, you get those things going, kids dragging. It was just, I, I don't know how anybody didn't die. But um, the playground, though, had this big open field and the field slanted downhill. And so this was our kickball field. And so every day at recess, you'd have this group of people that would come out and play kickball, and there was this ongoing game. It, like, never ended, and when somebody new came to school. You'd kind of draft them into the team if they wanted to play. And so every day, we'd get out there as quick as we could because we wanted to pick up the kickball game. Now, with that, there came moments of tension. There came moments where there were just, you know, these arguments, and most of the time it had to do with do the pants count rule. You know those deals where you throw the ball and it grazes the pants, but it doesn't really hit you? Are you out? Are you not out? Uh, kickball and dodgeball, if you want to see people just get irate and angry, play one of those two games. But, it, you know, we would have these little skirmishes all throughout the course of the year at various times. So one day in particular, I remember playing kickball, and I step up to the plate. And you got to remember that field sloped. And so the ideal, what you would want to do is you would want to get something that was rolled to you just outside so that you could come up with this big kick and pull it down that line and get it to go over that heel. That was the goal. So you had to be kind of selective in the the roll. So I remember standing up there, and the first one comes in kind of in the spot that you want, but it was bouncy, and nobody wants to kick a bouncy one. And the catcher when it crosses over goes, strike one. And I'm going, first of all, I don't know what qualifies you as another fourth grader to create a strike zone in kickball. And so I turn around and I was like, dude, it was bouncy. You know the rule, like we don't play bounces. He goes, but it still crossed the plane. So I gave a little argument and and we kind of went on. So the second one comes in, but it was a little bit inside where I wanted it, and so I let it cross. And he says, strike two. Well, at this point, it's on. I'm like, dude, you don't get to determine whether or not something's a strike. And so at th- this point, other people begin to argue. So I've got my teammates that are waiting over here to kind of kick. And so this argument begins to, take sh- to, to get, begins to take shape. And then it happened. I said some things that I shouldn't have said. In my fourth grade maturity, I think I said something along the lines of, well, your mom rolled a strike when she had you. You know, it was something along those lines—the Real mature stuff. And then in one quick motion, without warning, without notice, out of nowhere, kickball took on a whole new meaning. He reared back and kicked me in the families. And in an instant... I hit the ground, and I thought to myself, what is this? It was pain and discomfort that I had never felt in my life. I was seeing like blotches. I couldn't breathe. It it was that moment where I went, the world has slowed down. Like everybody was just moving slow. You women laugh like you know. (laughs) But it was this moment where the worst part of it was this. It lingered. Like, after recess, I'm still trying to catch my breath, and later on in the day, there was still these moments where I'm going, I'm not sure what has happened here. Now, you're going, what in the world have I walked to in this morning? (laughs) I wanted to illustrate this way, and here's why. I believe today's text is one of those moments. I believe there are certain scriptures, there are certain stories, there are certain parables, there are certain moments in God's Word, especially when Jesus teaches on certain things that I believe are meant to create discomfort. I think they're meant to give us the old kick to the midsection. I think they're meant to give us the old proverbial punch to the gut. Those moments where you're left kind of grasping and a day or two days or three days, it's kind of still lingering because it sits on us. And today is one of those texts where I want us, and I just want to be very clear on the front end, if you're a guest here and you don't know anything about Jesus, that's fine, you can kind of just take a pass for the day and and listen and and then you can come up to us at the end and go, that's right, he's, he's right. But I want us to, at the very beginning of this, I want us to feel the weight of this challenge. I want us to walk into this text knowing that this is a heavy text. I want us to walk into it feeling a little bit on edge, and hopefully what will happen is it will open the doors wide open for full-blown discomfort. And so I want us to feel the challenge. I want us to to know that this is, I'm going to use a a bad word, this is a command. This is an expectation for Jesus followers. It's not something that we can just glaze over. It's not something that we can just read quickly. It's, it's important that we feel uncomfortable with this text for a moment. I believe especially considering where we are in culture at the moment. And I think through the years what has happened, we've had several things that have happened with texts like this. Because when I get to it, you're going to go, oh, this." if if your church, you know, got some background or know anything about, you know, parables of Jesus, you're going to go, oh, I've heard this story in some context, or I've heard about this story, I've heard a sermon on this story, whatever it is. But I believe through the years we've done a few things. We've either, A, we've built up a tolerance to these sorts of texts, or we have romanticized them a little bit because we need to teach them to a kid in VBS or some sort of Sunday school or some, some kind of homeschool, you know, some, something where we're teaching Bible. We, we've romanticized it so that we can kind of illustrate it to a, a child or we've just ignored it. And so today, e- either one of those kinds of things, I believe that these stories are meant to linger, to make us feel uncomfortable, and I'll take it a step farther. I believe that these stories, just like that day on the the kickball field, I think they're meant to bring us to our knees. And I think they're meant for us to wrestle. And to this point in the series, we've brushed up against this a little bit, but I'm going to assume that everything that we've talked about in this series, you've been able to mentally kind of run through people that you know, People that fit the category, they don't know Jesus, but they're neighbors with me. I kind of like them. I kind of, you know, know them a little bit or a family member that's come to mind or a coworker that's come to mind or a student at my school that I know, you know, and so that's who I've kind of put in my mind as that person that I want to interact with, that person that I want to have exchange with. But what about the opposite? What about those who aren't like us? Aren't like you, aren't like me. How about those, if we take it a step farther, that we just simply do not like? And that's where Jesus comes at us today. See, we have a struggle with certain people or certain types of people that we just struggle to like, we struggle to trust, we struggle to even see value. Someone that is different than me and it annoys me or it scares me or it makes me angry or, or it frustrates me. For you, maybe it's that person at the office that is just talkative all the time. And you're kind of quiet and reserved and, and maybe it's as simple as that. But you go, listen, when I'm talking about eating with and beginning to make relationship with, that is not the person I'm thinking of. Maybe for you, it's that person who's always treating, creating drama. They're that gossip, and you hate drama, and it's just like you see them coming, and you can kind of see all the drama coming behind them, and you just go, I can't do this. That is not the person that I can carve out time and be nice to, because they're never nice to anyone. Maybe for you, it's that roll tide roll person, and you're of all for life. (laughs) We laugh at that, but I'm going to tell you, I have a friend who is a Georgia fan. And last year, after the Georgia game, he got into a little skirmish with an Alabama fan. And next thing you know, his brother's in the hospital with a broke leg. That stuff resonates. And we laugh, but there's still these moments where you, you just kind of go, wow, this is a bigger deal than I thought. I don't really want anything to do. And then we kind of go next level on this. Maybe it's that person that their skin is darker than yours or yours is lighter than theirs or vice versa. Maybe it's, I'm a man and she's a woman. Maybe it's, well, they don't think or believe like me politically, religiously, socially, or otherwise. And it's difficult, if we're honest, to get along with people who aren't like us. And Jesus comes at us hard with some expectations that says, listen, you got to wrestle with this you got to adjust. you got to live differently. You can't just sidestep this. So let me give you a little background. Back in Jesus' day, we've mentioned these people several times, but there were these religious elite. They were people that, who should have known better but didn't. And so they were people like the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, these lawyers, teachers of the law, masters, experts of the law. And here's what they did when it came to this. They created a loophole that made their life easier. Basically, they had this loophole that said, I can be nice to the people who are nice to me, and I can be mean to the people who are mean to me, and the best part of all of this is they would justify this using Scripture. They would take passages and they would borrow certain things. So, for an example, in Psalm 139, David says this to God in a moment of maybe frustration or in a moment where he and God are having conversation. And David would say things like this. He would say, do I not hate those who hate you? Lord, and harbor those who are rebelling against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as enemies. And so David would say, God, I just hate the people who are rebelling against you. Your enemy is my enemy. And so they would take those things and they would create these loopholes. See? I'm only hating who God hates. I'm only considering them an enemy because God considers them an enemy. Now, I'm going to put two things on the screen. that is probably some of the more important things I'm going to put today. I think over time, I'm afraid that many Christians have decided who they like and who they hate based on who they believe God likes and hates. Let me put it another way. Over time, I'm afraid many Christians have decided God likes and hates based on who they like and hate. And this is exactly what they had done. They had created these moments where they can say, I, in my Holiness, I'm justified in hating and mistreating and being mean and sidestepping and not dealing with people that I don't want to deal with who are like me because they are enemies of God. And so therefore, I'm only hating who God hates. And they felt justified in this. And so if we have this reasoning among us that says, well, I believe that God loves only church-going people then that would allow me then to love who? Only church-going people. And if I could begin to categorize these based on who I believe God hates or who he likes or who he loves and who he doesn't, then all of a sudden I can go, well, he only loves white people, so therefore I can kind of exclude. He loves Americans first, and we know that. Or he, 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 now he can't stand people with... Tattoos and piercings, and so I better stay clear from there. I mean, God hates homosexuals, so I'm just doing what God wants me to do. He just hates infidels. Oh, he hates the left and he loves the right, or he loves the left and he hates the right. And let's not even go into radical Islamists, right? I mean, God has to hate them. And so if I, if I lean in and I, I, I don't I have a, a biblical card? I'm only doing what God would do. I'm only loving who he loves and I'm only hating who he hates. And here's the problem. God doesn't hate the way we hate. See, God's hate is never pointed at the person. He doesn't determine value or favor like we determine value and favor. See, God's hate comes from a place where he's hating for the person. he, He gets in these moments where he hates that our mess, that our sin, that our neglect separates us from him. And he hates for us. He hates these moments where our separation causes chaos. And it's this compassionate hate where he says... I hate that you're living in the midst of of turmoil and chaos and and destruction. I I, I hate that that life is wreaking havoc on you. But I never hate you. I hate that there are moments that that, that we choose to step into things when there's better choices to be made. You're missing out on life. Full life. A better life. Potentially eternal life. See, God doesn't hate anyone. He hates what 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 life does to us and he created us for something more and something different. He he loves us with everything within himself. And guys, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for you and I. Because Paul makes it clear, doesn't he? In Romans 3, he says, listen, every single one of us have sinned and messed up and made mistakes. We've all fallen short. Of what it is that God would want us to be and do and how he wants us to live. And Paul continues to teach and Peter continues to teach. But, but God, through his will and his desire, redeems us through Jesus. But that's not the way we love and hate. And the Pharisees completely missed the point. And they missed the reality of what God had done in their lives And how he had dealt with their mistakes and their darkness and their failures and their shortcomings. They missed mercy. And they missed that mercy was at the driver's seat of everything that God was about and doing. That mercy was extended to them over and over and over. Mercy gave them something different than they deserved. And with that in mind, Jesus tells a story where he says that mercy is who you're called to be. Not just in the relationships that are good and beneficial and easy, but in the others. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 10. So I kind of take this verse by verse. 25, he says, on one occasion, an expert of the law, a lawyer, a student of the law, perfecter of the law, comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the story begins with a seemingly pretty innocent question. It's, you know, what, what I need to do to inherit eternal life. It's kind of like a student comes up to a teacher and says, hey teacher, what do I need to do to earn an A in this class? I mean, what do I need to do to, you know, make it through the class? And it seems like a pretty fair question, right? Unless the question comes from a bad attitude of just wanting to do the minimum. See, if I ask my teacher, hey, what do I need to do to pass this class, that's a fair question unless all I need to know is what do I not have to do instead of what do I need to do. And so that's that's, with that in mind, there's a false motive. And you go, well, hold up, how are we judging based on a question? Well, look down to verse 29. Verse 29, it says that he, what, just wants to justify himself. So he exposes himself even in the midst of all this. And he wanted Jesus to answer in such a way that made himself look good but also... He wanted Jesus to answer in such a way that he could be justified and feel better about his actions and attitudes. And so Jesus does what Jesus does. He answers the question, guess what, with a question. He says, well, what is written in the law? I love that. He knew who the guy was. You're a perfector. You're an expert in the law. What's the law say? And he says, how do you read it? So he kind of puts it back on him and he says, well, what, what does... The law that you've given your life to, what does Scripture say? I mean, that's a good place to start, right? I mean, why are you wanting to know what I I have to say? Just tell me what it is that you have perfected. Tell me what it is that you've spent your life studying. What does it say? And the lawyer responds with this. Well, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what he does. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, that's Deuteronomy 6. That's law. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself? Well, that's Leviticus 19. That's law. And it's the the perfect answer. It's A plus, gold star. It's the perfect answer. In fact, it's the same answer that Jesus gives to the question later on in Matthew 22. When asked, what's the greatest command? He gives this answer. It is by textbook the answer to give. I mean, it sums up everything. It highlights the three great priorities, right? God, neighbor, and self. It it, it escalates, it it, it highlights, it it casts this great light on everything that is. And Jesus replies very simply, look at this, verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I love that Jesus, again, quotes from Old Testament Scripture. He goes back to Leviticus 18 when he says, do this and live. It's a promise that if you keep God's law perfectly, you'll live perfectly. And the problem is this, is that he nor none of us can keep God's law perfectly. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. That's that's. That's the whole point is that God does something on our behalf. He extends mercy in such a way that saves us from our imperfections of law keeping. Now, at this moment, here's what should have happened. When he says, go and do likewise. When he says, do this and you can live. The lawyer should have been convicted to the point where he says, but I don't do this well. At that moment, the lawyer should have admitted his guilt and, like us, should have said, I have failed, and I do fail, and I don't get it right, and I have failed at loving God and my neighbor, and I've failed at loving my neighbor, therefore I've failed at loving God, and God, will you extend mercy? That's the response that he should have had, and Jesus just kind of lets that sit with him. And instead of being convicted of his own, he wants to be justified. He's still bulldog to that loophole. He's trying to figure this out, and he wants to make himself feel good, not about making changes. He wants to make himself feel good about living the way he's currently living. And here's what he says, verse 29, he says, He was trying to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, Who then is my neighbor? Who exactly Jesus is my neighbor. You see it? He's looking for that loophole. He was looking for a way out. Here's what he was looking for. He was looking for a list. And he was asking, I believe, the wrong question. See, maybe the better question instead of who is my neighbor, the better question should have been this. Jesus, what kind of neighbor am I supposed to be? But see, he knew the danger in asking that question. That's why he asked, who is my neighbor, instead of what kind of neighbor do you want me to be? And here's why. It seems less risky to ask, who am I supposed to love, rather than who am I called to be? See, when I'm told who I'm supposed to love, then I can quickly move to list making. And when I get my list set, I can begin to include and exclude who I need to based on the list, and Jesus knew that. See, the list list that he was after would have been relieving. Oh, I am free to continue to do what it is. I, I am so glad, you know, Jesus, I'm glad that you have taught me what I have been taught my whole life, that I don't have to worry about certain people. You know, I don't have to worry about tax collectors, and I don't have to worry about prostitutes, and I don't have to worry about sinners, I don't have to worry about Gentiles, I don't have to worry especially that old most radical group, you know, those people. And Jesus, I believe, smiles and says, (laughs) Brace yourself. And he tells a story, the old kick that was meant to linger. And I think we've glazed over it. And he says in reply, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest came along going down the same road. And when he saw, key in on that, it wasn't that the man missed him, didn't see him. He saw him and passed on the other side. So too a Levite, another religious person, came to the place and he saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where he was, and he saw him, took pity on him. And he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he put the man on his own donkey, brought him into the inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, and he gave to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you And this is the moment where everybody would have gone, oh, that hurts. See, Samaritans were northerners who were actually half Jew. During the Assyrian conquest, when the Assyrians had conquered them about 700 years earlier, the Assyrian king had his people marry into their people and create half-breeds. And so as a result of this, the Jewish population from the south, these devout Jews, despised the half-breed Samaritans. And Jesus chose a Samaritan for the hero. He could have picked anyone else. And they, it would have been at least in part palatable. He picked the most far-out hero that anyone would have ever thought to. He didn't pick the priest. He didn't pick the Levi. He didn't even pick the priest assistant. You know, like maybe he had an assistant traveling along going, hey, you go ahead, I'll take care. He didn't pick the church goer. He didn't pick any. He didn't pick a pastor, a prophet, no religious people because they were too holy to be tainted by the injured man. They were too busy, maybe on their way to church, I don't know. And we don't even know the, the religious background of the Samaritan. Maybe he didn't have any. Here's what we know is that he was a Samaritan and he traveled and he saw the same person they saw and he stopped. At that moment, he didn't think about the hundreds of years of detrimental hatred. He didn't think about the hundreds of years of systemic and systematic hatred that was pointed at him. All he saw was a fellow human being in need and he stopped and he did it at personal risk and personal cost. And it's that kick to the gut. But Jesus isn't finished. He wants to hear what he thinks. And so he ask him one final question Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And I noticed something about this text this go around. He asked, Which one was the neighbor? To the injured man, notice that Jesus did not ask which person in the story is the neighbor. He asked, who do you think was neighborly? And the lawyer, I'm sure with some level of disappointment, frustration, you would hope conviction answers. He says, well, the one, I love that, that he can't, he can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan. He says, well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus simply replies with, go and do the same. So as we land this morning, are you starting to see stars yet? Let me ask one more question that I believe, I think will, at least for, uh, I hope would cause some reflection, and it's this. I wonder, who would Jesus choose for your neighbor? If he walked into your house this afternoon and told you this story, if he walked in here this morning and told us collectively the story. See, Jesus intentionally chose the Samaritan because he knew that in that moment there would be no one that would be above him on the most hated list. There would be no race, there would be no person or persons that would have qualified under their loophole that they had found through David and other places that would qualify more so than being an enemy of God, than the Samaritans. And that's who Jesus chose to make the hero and illustrate the story. So here's my question. If he came into my table, who would he say, Jason, let me tell you a story. And there was a blank who chose to put himself out there and extend mercy. So who would Jesus choose for your story? Would it be a person who gets on your nerves, causes you to think things that you shouldn't think and distract? Would it be a person who is constantly bringing trouble on themselves? Well, they keep finding themselves in the ditch because they're making bad choices. And, you know, so I can just kind of walk away from that and I can feel good about that and I don't have to. Or would it be that person that we try to avoid at all costs? Would it be the person with different color skin that practices a different religion Or practices things that maybe you just don't feel great about. And Jesus says, yes. 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 That's the one. Go and do likewise. That's who I want you to serve. And that's who I want you to love. See, the lawyer assumed that people had to earn their neighborly neighborly status in order for us to love them and serve them. And Jesus comes in and he says, let me make it clear. It's not about them earning or deserving anything. It is as a follower of Jesus, your responsibility. And it is an expectation that you don't make the list of who's your neighbor, but you become a merciful neighbor. And in that, I believe there is great need For our communities to know that, listen, we don't even have a list. We don't have qualifiers because we know who we're called to be. So who would Jesus choose for our neighbor? And am I attempting to be fully in tune with the spirit of of Jesus and who it is that he'll put in my path? And in the moments it gets tough, I just want to be reminded of things when Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, listen, Don't let us become weary of doing good. He goes on to say, he says, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And he says, listen to this, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And so we're going to love those who love us. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to love those who persecute us and are negative toward us. We're going to love those who get on our nerves and annoy us. We're going to love those who are different because we're going to love who God loves. One of the things I love about what we do every week, and I know it's times that maybe it could feel disjointed or maybe it feels routine, but we gather around tables and we partake in what we call communion. You know, and and some would reference this as a table of mercy. It's a place where you can come and you can stare face-to-face into mercy. Because the, the, the thing is, is that what, what is represented on these tables, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood and body of Jesus that was given for us, none of us earn. It doesn't matter if you come once a week, once a month, and if you're at every, uh, every service project we do and you give all sorts of money, none of that earns you a seat. None of, us, none of that qualifies us to sit at these tables, but God says, listen, it's not about that. It's I created a table of mercy. I created a table of community because I love you. And, 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 and I want you to know that I've gone out of my way at an opportunity to extend hope and grace and mercy so that you can live a full life, you can live a life that, that is so much better than living in chaos and living in, in, in these moments where havoc is wreaked. You can, and it's a reminder of that. And so this is a celebration where we come together and we get to look across the table at other imperfect people who are doing their best to embrace God's love and then begin to empower others with. And that's what we're going to do. So if you're new to this, you're more than welcome at the table. This is not a membership thing. It's not a, a partner thing. It's, it's a God thing. If you're not comfortable with that, the band's going to play a song and you can continue to sing or just sit quietly or pray. We have people who will be back at Respond and those people are back there for confession, for, for those moments where you go, listen, I've blown it or listen, I've got some really heavy stuff on me, man. I've got some medical stuff and some financial stuff, my job and my kid. And You know, those are moments where you get to just confide in someone that's trustworthy. Just this last week, I was with most of that group that will stand back there and pray. Pray for you, and pray for myself, pray for other staff, and pray for our church, pray for our community, and they love to just listen and pray. So they're back there, they're going to be in Red Lanyards. You can find them if you need to have that moment, want to have that moment. Maybe you're at a place where you, you, you know you need to have that moment, you're just not ready to talk. Just go back there and get a card and you write it and put it in a box. You don't have to talk to anyone. We would love nothing more to pray for you on our own time. But I want you to know that God loves you. But he expects us as those who have received love. The expectation is for us to also be givers of love.